Principal Matters Podcast, episode 385. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the School Leaders Podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're going to talk about capturing kids' hearts with my special guest, the renowned Flip Flippin. Flip Flippin is a New York Times bestselling author, social entrepreneur, psychotherapist, and the founder and chairman of Capturing Kids Hearts, one of the largest educator training and team development companies in North America. Flip and his wife, Susan, were named Ernest and Young's Entrepreneurs of the Year, making them the first couple to ever receive this prestigious award. Their company was chosen by Texas Monthly Magazine as the number two best companies to work for in Texas. Flip and his team are passionate about bringing out the best in people. Flip Flippin, welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. Before we jump into the questions, I like to ask my guest to fill in the gaps on that intro. And why don't you tell listeners something else they may be surprised to know about you? <laughs> well, first, Will, thanks for having me. It's just a privilege on our part to get to be on your podcast. So thank you for that. I, I think the the other thing that uh, is probably probably more important than anything to people is that uh, Susan and I have helped raise in one form or another 20 kids. And so we have uh, we have a huge family and we love children. We've just uh, our whole lives have been about kids. And so that's uh, that's, that's probably the greatest legacy I'll ever leave will be in my family. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Mm, that's a good legacy. Well, you and I were talking off the air and I was setting the stage for this conversation. And I'll do the same thing for our listeners just so that they know. I started teaching in 1993, Flip, and I remember coming across your content back in the 90s. And then later in my leadership development, I came across some of the coaching work that you've done. And because of the growth of my podcast, um, I started becoming friends with your team members and so I was joking with you that this is the longest it's taken me to get a guest on my show. So flip flipping, I am so excited to have you in the room and I'm going to try to squeeze every, every moment here. So I'm just going to dive straight, straight into some questions that I've been dying to ask you for a long time. The first is, let's talk about why you are motivated by educators. So who was one of your best teachers and coaches and, and why, what kind of influences have teachers made in your life? Well, let's go back and start real quick. Uh, so a quick overview. In first grade, I found out my real name and uh, my, my teacher was calling me by my legal name. I'd never heard it before, Will. And I, I actually broke down crying and I, I was, uh, I'll never forget that. I went to the nurse's station in, in, in great uh, disarray. <laughs> Uh, finally was comforted. And so I've been flip all my life. In second grade, I had the most phenomenal experience with Ms. Matthews and and Ms. Gresham. They uh is interesting at the towards the end of the second grade uh year for me, they're in a small town in Orange, Texas. Uh uh she told me, she said, Flip, there have been five boys that the principal's chosen for uh, a leadership program, and you have to get your parents to agree to it and all this kind of stuff. And well, I was really excited. And so I went home and got my parents to sign this little paper so I could be in this leadership program. And we were going to help first graders get started in second grade. And 
and and well, that was a that was a defining moment for me. Well, uh, I'm 18 years old, and I'm being driven to college by my mother, and uh, she tells me that uh, it's really good that I'm with my age group, and I'm like, I don't. What do you mean, my age group? And she said, Well, you know, when when we held you back in second grade, and I was like, Mother, I didn't get held back in second grade. That's my brother or somebody. It wasn't me. I mean. Uh, I said, remember, I was chosen for that leadership academy and all that. <laughs> and well, honest to gosh, she looked at me, she said, did it ever dawn on you that you never went back up with the other group? <laughs> and, and but, well, here's the beauty of that. I couldn't read. Mm-hmm. I could not read. And they didn't, I was never framed as a failure, as a loser, as I, nothing. I I was chosen to be in a leadership program to help other kids get their lives started. And well, as surely mm-hmm. as I sit here, I'm telling you that has defined my entire life's work as a, as a psych, psychotherapist working with gangs, running a nonprofit all the way up through our corporate services today. I mean, it doesn't make any difference what it is. She defined my life. So second grade was the best two years of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, Sixth grade was wonderful with Hazel Fennell, and, and I had Miss Kirkendall. I had I had Miss Kantz. I had some wonderful, wonderful teachers. Cappy Riggs was my coach, and I'll never forget him. You know, you know. Here's the here's the interesting thing is that, you know, I was not I was not close to my parents, and there were they had a lot of their own struggles and issues, and um, you know, I got hugged i think my mother hugged me when i was 42 and and it was nice but it was a little late but it, but it was nice and uh, pretty much the same for my dad but uh, and, and you know they were good people they just had their own issues but when you've got when you've got adults in your life that genuinely care about you they write so deep on your soul you never get over it and i, I never have i uh, you know i i drive a denali and I live on my ranch and, you know, I, I have clothes and I have a ton of books and, you know, I own my house and everything in my life will, everything, every place I've gone, I owe to my teachers. Mm-hmm. So how in the world could I not be in love with that? You know, I love those stories flip and um, you're bringing back my own memories. I'm a, I think you and I are fellow storytellers one of the memories that you're bringing back to me was um, my early years in Northwest Tennessee. We were in a very rural community and I had such great teachers who cared deeply about me and my parents were um, affectionate and supportive too. But it wasn't until my very first year of teaching when we were passing out forms for free and reduced lunches that the light bulb came on. And I thought, you know what? I qualified every single year for free and reduced lunches when I was going through school, but I never knew I never knew what Title I was. I never knew. I didn't know anything about the, the federal programs involved in that until I was actually back in the school as a teacher. Yeah. And then I had that same reflection you did, which was, wow, whatever my background was, it certainly didn't define my outlook on life in terms of my teachers always treated me like I could do anything. And they instilled that yeah. same hope in me. And and I think in some ways they protected me from some of the, the realities that I was facing too. It sounds similar to what you've gone through. I know that the foundational 
experiences that we have often, and you said this yourself, set us on the trajectory of where we're going to go. So talk about how that trajectory led you to capturing kids' hearts. Well, it's a, you know, it's a great story. I was finishing up my doctoral work at A&M and it it was fascinating to me. I was going to Kenya to work on a project with Lewis Leakey and I had the opportunity to really work with a bunch of gang kids and I fell in love with those kids. And uh, of course I was not that much older and I just thought, you know, I could really make a difference here. And uh, Dr. Leakey's position was the most prestigious position in the world at that time in my profession. And, and I, I just, I'll never forget telling Dr. Kovleski that I was going to resign that position and open a nonprofit and work with gang kids. And, and, you know, well, here are the things that I learned is that working with gangs and I learned more working with gangs than I ever did in school. I'll just tell you that they, I, I, I learned what works, what doesn't work etc you know i didn't know nobody knew a lot of the neuroscience then that we know now but but the reality is is that every time i was in a good relationship with somebody i was very safe it didn't matter i mean i spent a lot of time in the mexican mafia and uh, the noyes cadita gang and some others that you know are are pretty violent and and uh, the learning there was just spectacular and but the thing I learned is that, and I wrote this down, if you have a child's heart, you've got his head. And people people did not listen to me until they knew I would deliver for them and care for them. And I was in the jail first time, first few times I ever went to jail. I'd never been to a jail. And there's this guy up there and he's like, hey, will you, will you check on my on my sister? And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And of course, he no more thought I'd do that in a man to man. And uh, next week, you know, I was up there and I said, yeah, she's doing okay. She's got some needs and here's what they are. And here's what we're doing to kind of help her with that. And and he's like, dude, you, did you check on her? Or did you check her out? And I was like, hey, look, I'm, I'm married. I'm not checking your girl out. That's not what this is about. And, and you know, and the next thing you know is he hears from her that I did what I said I was going to do. And just over a matter very quickly of months, I had I had very trusting relationships with these guys. And I I watched drug deals go down. I watched guys shoot up. I saw things. I had a letter from the district judge that uh, pretty much exempted me from being able to be arrested for being in the settings. And I, I just learned so much. But the whole deal, well, everything about it was that if you if you have a deep relationship with someone, you can make a difference in their lives. If you don't, and all you show up with is well intentions and platitudes, they, they're not going to pay attention to you. They read authenticity better than any group on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, and so from there, the thing I begin to understand is what they needed were skills to be able to walk in the door and make a difference. They could get a job. They could create jobs. They could do things with their lives. They didn't know how to get dressed. They didn't know how to introduce themselves. They didn't know how to interact with the business community. And so we put these programs together to teach these kids business and professional skills. And then we had them mentoring each other on it. And, and, you know, well, I know people don't think about this, but everything we do operates in a subculture, you know, like our black sons, if it's, if it's all the black guys getting together, 
they've got a they've got a subculture of how they greet each other, you know, and we have a business subculture. There's a school subculture. Everybody's Mr. and Ms. at school. That's not true in the business world. That's a separate subculture. Mm-hmm. Women, when they get together, they greet themselves differently than if they're a group of men there. And so it's all about how do you learn these different rules of the subcultures? And I wanted them to be able to learn the rules that would help get them into a position where they could have more influence and have a job. And that's that was the foundation of the whole thing. So, Flip, I'm going to stay here because I want to dig deeply into next into the process, because you understand the heart of what it takes to work with people and how to connect those heart. That, that trusting, as you would say, that trusting relationship to now permission to teach you skills. And so there's the foundation. And then here's the direction. How did you take that and turn that into the, the capturing kids hearts process? Because there's a process now that you, that you've been able to put together that as that's not just worked for you. It's worked for lots of people. So talk about what is that process that, that helps kids who experience trauma move into successful outcomes? Well, it, it actually is pretty cool how it even came about because you know, we were running this leadership curriculum. I saw patients all, all day long, every day. And then I hired Lee Basin to work with me. Barbara Knowles had come as my assistant. And and we started teaching an after-school model on teaching these skills. Our teen leadership is what we called it. And it was a 10-week program. You had to apply to get in it. We had a very mix in terms of demographics and SES levels in the in the classes. And they were a screaming success. I mean, those kids went on did phenomenal. In fact, I just had a call this week from a young man who was 17 in inner city Cincinnati, African-American kid, single mom, phenomenal kid. And I got to spend a lot of time with him. And uh, he went on, spent... 15 years in the CIA as a covert operative, and then several years in the FBI, and now heads up a Google uh, hacking force, a global hacking force uh, for Google and cybersecurity. And, you know, that's just one example. Well, I can give you thousands of them, but we've had over 2 million kids go through that. But, but the bottom line is the governor called here in Texas and said, hey, put this in public schools, and, you know, I'm, I'm really, really sharp. And I said, hey, no. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And, <laughs> and we had a robust discussion about that. And because I was concerned that everything I'd poured my soul into, I, I didn't want it to get commoditized and reduced to, you know, some simple process. And, and, uh, and so the commissioner you know, was very, very helpful. And he said, let's run some pilots. And so we trained five teachers and I think three of them got it and two of them thought I was nuts. And, and then we trained seven and five of them got it. And two of them thought I was really nuts. And <clears throat> this past year, and we've trained over 70,000 teachers, Will, in two day or more processes in you know, over 10,000 campuses nationwide. We've got right now, we've got somewhere between seven and nine million students going through our stuff every day. That's, that's over 10% of the population of the entire student population of the nation. And we never dreamed to do this. And it's very humbling. But the one thing, Will, that I learned is that me teaching a 10, a 10 week course, you know, uh, two hours once a week, I, I, I didn't have the depth of relationships 
that a teacher could build being with that kid every day, day in and day out, crying with them, seeing when their hearts are broken, seeing when they're succeeding, celebrating their wins on the field. And so we've found so, I mean, tens of thousands of teachers that are just phenomenal. And, and so for me, it's been very humbling and very sobering because they're able to do so much more than I could ever do. And again, grateful. That's the only word I can think of. Wow. So take me on a visit, Philip. And I know with, you know, millions of students who've been through these programs and 70,000 plus teachers who've been trained in this That's curriculum. This year, Will. That's this year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but take me, take me on a visit. And I know this is, I'm doing this for, for the, for both my own curiosity, but also I want to, I want listeners to step into a, a school. Let's just step into a school with you, Flip. And if I was to see educators using the Capturing Kids' Hearts processes in that school, what would I be experiencing? What are some of the things that I would see that you would be like, hmm, I can see the fingerprints of this training on what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually how we identify the National Capturing Kids Hearts Showcase winners. So let me give you some good examples from a data point of view. We're looking at five different metrics. Discipline referrals is the first one. If we can't drop those discipline referrals within 90 days pretty dramatically, we are absolutely shocked. We know something is really wrong. And it could be the leadership, it could be the way the model's implemented, it could be the student population, it could be a lot of things. No, no, no bodies to blame for that. It could be a lot of variables. But we always see a dramatic drop in discipline referrals. And here's why. If I come in and say, hey, Will, here are the rules for how you're going to interview me, and here's how you're going to treat me, and here's how, and I'm telling you all this, everything in you is going to rise up against that and say, who's he to be telling me this? You know, yeah. well, we're all that way. If I push on you, you push back. Mm -hmm. And every place I go, I see a discipline manual. I've never seen a relationship manual. And <clears throat> so the first thing you're going to see is a social contract process where the kids write the rules for their class. They're their rules. It's their class. I want them to learn self-governance. We cannot teach self-governance if they don't learn how to self-govern. And that's that to me is the biggest loss in America today. And so you're going to see social contract theory because of social contracts being implemented in the classroom. When you walk in the classroom, one of those students, I don't care if it's kindergarten or seniors, is going to get up, greet you while the teacher's teaching and, and say, uh, Will, would you mind coming and reading over our social contract and seeing if you're okay with that? And, and you're like, uh, gosh, okay. And then they're going to ask you to sign it. And we see tons of signatures on these from parents and people who've dropped in the class. We expect you to behave in line with the rules that class has set up. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the first things. Uh, the next thing that you're going to see is you're going to see individual academic performance go up and standardized test score performance go up. Although standardized tests right now are uh, catching a lot of flack, but the the reality is, is that when, when kids learn how to self-govern, they have to accept personal responsibility. You're going to see kids greeting you in the hallways. You're going to see people behaving markedly different. 
you're going to see teacher engagement in an entirely different level. You will see, well, and this is shocking, but you will see instead of just a teacher greeting the kids at the door of every classroom, you will see kids standing at the door, greeting kids at the door. You know, welcome to our classroom. I just left a hot huddle that our, our in-office uh, staff is having right now. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're standing at the door, hugging everybody, comes in, greeting everybody's excited, happy to be together. And those are the kind of things, you know, if you, if you create a great culture, you can put a curriculum on top of that that'll work. But let me tell you, Will, I don't care how good your curriculum is. You put it on top of a bad culture, it's going to fail. Yes. And that's the mistake that we are making right now in education. Mm -hmm. We are heavy, heavy focused on, we got to get the curriculum right. We got to get all the standards right. We got to get all that right. And well, I'm telling you, you can have the best seeds in the world, but you plow them out on rocks and see how it works for you. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors and then we'll be right back. Everyone talks about the power of data-driven instruction, but what does that actually look like? Look no further than IXL, the ultimate online learning and teaching platform for K-12. IXL gives you meaningful insights that drive real progress and research can prove it. Studies across 45 states show that schools who use IXL outperform other schools on state tests. Educators who use IXL love that they can easily see how their school is performing in real time to make better instructional decisions. And IXL doesn't stop at just data. IXL also brings an entire ecosystem of resources for your teachers with a complete curriculum, personalized learning plans, and so much more. It's no wonder that IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts. Ready to join them? Visit IXL.com backslash PM to get started. Oh, I love that. Well, I can't help but pause there, Flip. I, I grew up in West Tennessee, and so I'm a kid that saw a lot of dirt, and <laughs> my grandparents always had a great garden, and I, I love that. That's so quotable, but I want to come back to a couple of things that you said. When I walk into a school where you have been helping schools discover how to capture kids' hearts, because you realize that is the fertile ground in which the seeds of learning can be planted. You you said some things here that I, I just have to park for listeners for just a moment and be the teacher, because the outcomes that you're seeing, the reduction in discipline referrals, the increase in academic performance, all of that is the fruit of the culture that exists where students have norms, I'm going to call them norms, social contracts mm -hmm. for yep. these are, right. this is what, this is how we do things here. And so there's right. an, there's a set agreement on this is how we do things here. There's yep. also practiced behavior so because those kids aren't greeting at the doors just because it happened by yep. happenstance. Someone is training them That's to, right. to, 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 to engage each other in a culture that becomes even more welcoming when it's not just educators, but the kids that are doing it. And, and I'm going to say what you already know, Flip, because you and I both love good teachers and love good classrooms, but a school building or a school campus or whatever you want to call it, I'll, I'll even say the whole school community becomes one big classroom. 
So you, so a good classroom has all of those dynamics that you just described. And what you guys are doing with Capturing Kids Hearts is you're inviting an entire school community to become that kind of classroom. That's Let's right. build that kind of experience for every person here. I want to, let, let me let you respond to that before I ask my next question, because I, well, I know your wheels are, are going to. It's too. true. Well, I mean, healthy communities, that is, that is not, schools don't even think that way. They, they can talk like that. And there are many great leaders who really do think that way too. But, but the reality is, is that in classrooms, you compete for your grades. That's what you do. You compete for your grades. The biggest issue in classrooms today is not the academics. We talk about learning loss. Let me tell you something. Our kids can catch up and our teachers can catch them up. The biggest issue is our discipline issues. It's because we have dysfunctional communities inside our school. <clears throat> part of that, uh, I think a significant part of that is due to government regulation, uh, rules and constraints that are placed on educators. And I could give you lots of, uh, of indications of that too. But, but the reality is you create a healthy community. And if you can create that in the classroom, then you walk it down the hall. Mm -hmm. You take it down the hall until you've spread it through the entire system. And that changes the entire community outside the school. So, Philip, as a mentor of leaders, and, and I'm just going to say that's what you are because you've done this work for a long time and you've got kids now that are doing great things like the student that you mentioned earlier who's in um, leadership within the government, leadership within business. But I want to talk to that leader whose job is to lead a school. And if you had an opportunity to sit down for coffee with a principal, for instance, what kind of advice would you give him or her in how to bring out the best in their people? Yeah. the uh, You know, let me tell you, well, people there, you got to remember I'm a clinician. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been a practitioner all my life. Uh, so you gotta, you gotta remember why do people change? Well, I think that there's only one reason people change only one reason they ever change. And that is they have an emotionally, compelling reason to do so. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason, you know, how many, how many people do we know are overweight? And I mean, they know they got to change that. Their doctors told them, their friends have told them, their spouse has told them. It doesn't make any difference. The scales tell them every day. They don't change. They don't change. But if you have an emotionally compelling reason, then the next thing is, is okay. How do I, how do I make that change? So the first thing for me with leaders is what are, what are you, truly passionate about as it relates to your role in this school? What are you passionate about? And whatever that passion is, you've got to convey that as purpose to your team. <clears throat> well, I've got, well, we've got over, well over 550 people in our company spread out all over the globe. And we get right now I'm getting three to five resumes personally a day. And there's nothing on our website that says contact us. We have no job openings and we have no career offerings. And people are always like, how do we get in the company? Well, here's the thing is that we believe people are drawn to purpose. They want to participate in a purpose filled life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incumbent on leaders no matter what their industry is, to take what they're doing and tie that to some significant purpose. 
And if you can't do that, then basically I've just got a job. Why would I be passionate about that? I mean, we're on fire about what we do. We've got a, we've got a four-star on my board. I got two, three stars in the company. I got special forces guy. I've got guys that have sold their companies. One guy sold his company for over $300 million and called me and said, Flip, can I have a job? And I was like, oh my Lord, are you kidding? He's like, nope. He said, there's nothing in the world I want to do more than be part of y'all. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, Sean's sitting right here. He's amazing at what he does. And But why is he here? Why is he not still doing stuff with Shark Tank and the other top companies in the world? And people want purpose. So the leaders have to put that in front of their people. You cannot sit there and talk about your statistics. You can't talk about your curriculum. You let, your, you let the subordinates do that. You let the number two, number three, number four people. The number one person should be driving purpose and passion with every breath out of his mouth. There's so much there, Philip, and I'm just going to let listeners sit on that for a few minutes because how you communicate that passion to your people is what's going to drive the outcomes in your school. Right. Now, before I lose this opportunity as a practiced clinician and as somebody who spent a lot of time looking at brain research and data, what are some other things? Um, what are a couple of things? Because I know we, you could you could write a book at this very moment if I ask you this question too broadly. So let me narrow it down. What did you share a couple of things that you've discovered in your work with schools and organizations that connects to that kind of, that to your brain research that you've done and to the data that you've been studying? Well, here here's some amazing things that just this stuff just fascinates me. If I could go back, I'd get a PhD in neuroscience right now, and uh, but I, I can't, so I'm sending some of my team to get it. <laughs> but the but but here's something beautiful: uh, high levels of cortisol, a stress hormone, shrinks our hippocampus. Well, our hippocampus is our short-term memory. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, or I, I don't care where you come from, who you are. High levels of stress shrink your short-term memory. So let's say that we just had an event like COVID and we come back to school, everybody, including the teachers, hippocampus is shrunk. So you have a wonderful lesson. And so you teach that lesson, but the short-term memory doesn't have any hooks to hang it on. So you, you taught a wonderful lesson and they can't retain it. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what we found out uh, eight and a half years ago, Paul Zach at Claremont University and several other neuroscientists uh, a buddy of mine down running the legacy project in Houston doing fMRIs. We found out you can regrow the hippocampus. There are only three parts of your body, your liver, your skin, and your hippocampus that to date we know can be re regrown. And mm -hmm. so if I can regrow my short-term memory, if I can plump that organ up, how would I, the question is, how do we do that? Guess what we found? Lower levels of cortisol, higher levels of oxytocin and dopamine. And so how do we do that? Guess what that is? It is touching people. It is affirming people. It is nodding. I mean, well, I'm talking, you're nodding. I'm talking, you're smiling. You're talking, I'm smiling. That is feeding me neurochemically. And so I, I know, right? I mean, I'm a really happy camper sitting here with you. <laughs> and the reason for that is because we're having this interpersonal engagement that actually is impacting me neurochemically. Mm. Now, now let me tell you how unavoidable this is. If 
if I walk up behind you and you're keyboarding, okay, your error rate is going to go up about 30% within less than 10 seconds. That's a fairly universal phenomenon. Why is that? It's because your amygdala, your freeze, flight, or fight response kicks in. Well, how about if I walk up behind you, knowing your error rate is going to go up, if it's a test, a question, I call on you. Well, well, God bless you, child. What's the answer to X, Y, Z? And you totally smooth freak out. I, I, I should expect that. And I should be able to say, okay, guys, come on. Let's help him. Who's got the answer? Come on. Where we can play with that and lower those stress levels. And get it where you're comfortable, even taking a shot. I want you to be okay making mistakes. I want you to be safe. I'm not going to measure you on did you get it right. I'm going to measure you on how you are growing and developing, knowing that you will get it right. And so, uh, so we know that we can regrow the hippocampus. So if that's true, then, man, we need to get after it as quickly as we possibly can. And that's what we do. That That's how we, that's one of the ways we interweave all of that. Isn't it wonderful to take what <laughs> science is explaining about the physiological things that are happening in our bodies. And it's just impossible not to be a teacher and to think, okay, how's this working in a classroom or how's this working with people? Because you just said two, such two powerful things there. Flip, and I don't need to repeat this verbatim for listeners, but it's just helpful for me to think out loud. But when we can regrow short-term memory by placing people in situations where touching and affirmation and safety gives them the space to grow, then we're going to see that stress level lower. And suddenly we're going to see understanding improve. And the same thing applies, as you just said, to lowering that flight fight response yep which gives people permission to learn take risks maybe even make mistakes knowing it's going to be okay yep. and that that's the kind of nurturing environment where we all where we want to grow which is why your company is an attractive place that people want to work but it's yep. also the kinds of places that we want our schools to be for people to learn as well that's this what, that's is what you're doing at home, yeah. Will. Yes, it is. I mean, think about it. You know, people don't intentionally do their home life. We do. I mean, we are very intentional about it. You can't walk in our door without us hugging you. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if you're from New York or London or Dubai or it's immaterial to us. You know, we're going to welcome you into our home. We we have a group of Muslims and uh, and people from India, uh, primarily, uh, for, you know, a Hindu country, coming for Thanksgiving. Yeah, we are going to have the most wonderful time and they're all excited about it, but I want to engage them very intentionally. I want to ask lots of questions about them. I want them to get comfortable telling their stories. And so if we intentionally had a process for this, you know, it, it makes it all happen. It's, it's really quite beautiful. <laughs> I, I think I could continue this conversation for days, flip flipping, but I'm going to respect your time. And I want to just wrap up with two things. One, there's people listening right now that are like, how in the world can I get flip or his team in my, in my building? How can I connect with you? That's 
that's what, so I want you to be able to tell people how to connect. But then as we wrap up, I also want you just to share a parting word of advice for a leader who's thinking right now hard about like, how do I continue to create this kind of environment for my school? Well, so I, I think to answer that question, well, you know, I have a, I have a question for leaders. So keep in mind, our corporate services team, we work heavy in private equity, oil and gas, energy, finance, all across the globe. Okay. So I can sit in New York with Tony Tritrone at Newberger Berman, managing $380 billion and say, Tony, I, I just want to know, do you, do you love your team? I mean, do you love your team or are they just uh, production commodities that you dispense with if they don't produce? Do you love your team? And the first time I asked that, he, it was very awkward for him. If you called him today, he would say unashamedly, <laughs> uh, openly, I do. And so I think the very first thing is, you know, do you, do you love the team right around you? You know, do you love your people? Do you love what you're doing? Do you love your purpose? And I, my wife says all the time, love never fails. And right now we're in such a divided, politicized world. You know, Will, I've, I've got, I got BOM friends and CRT friends and people on the far right, and people on the far left. And I got nuts on both sides and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't have to agree with everybody. I mean, all this stuff on LGBT and on and on and on. I don't have to agree with everybody. I don't even, well, I don't even agree with everything I do. <laughs> Why the heck would I have to agree with everything somebody else does? That does not keep me from loving them mm -hmm. and treating them with great dignity and care and warmth. I'm, I'm just not going to live any other way than that. And, and I've never had anybody say to me, hey, Flip, you, you know, you you just care for me too much. You pull for me too much. You root for me too much. You support me too much. I don't hear people whining about that. And so that's that's where that's where we pitched our tent and that's where we're going to stay. Well, it has been such an amazing honor to stay connected, to meet you finally, virtually. I feel like I've known you before because I followed your work for quite a while now. But principal managers, listeners, as we wrap up today, um, and I like to say it this way, Flip, um, give yourself permission to love your schools. Give yourself permission to love your schools. I, I, every leader has such an important role that requires courage and determination and organizational structure, all those skills that are so important for the work that you're doing. But man, when it's embedded in the, the passion and the love and the care that you show to other people, then you've got a place to land when it gets really hard. And so Flip Flippin', Thank you for your wisdom, for the work you've done. Thank you for the influence that you've had in schools and, and, in, and, and in this world. Um, and on behalf of Principal Matters listeners, I just want to thank you for doing what matters. And uh, Principal Matters listeners, I want to thank you for listening in. And if you check out our show notes, there will be links there so that you can connect with the work that Flip Flippin does and capturing kids' hearts. Until next time, thanks for doing what matters, and we'll see you next week. Find free resources like this one at williamdparker.com. Subscribe for our free weekly newsletter, which contains bonus material. And also check out the links for Grow Academies, Masterminds, Executive Coaching, and keynote presentations from my books, as well as from Principal Matters Associates. You can find out more under our Speakers tab at williamdparker.com. 
Thank you for learning together and thank you for doing what matters.